Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got the story about a major fire at a historic property on Main Street in Wellfleet, as well as things beginning to come into focus as we head into fall town meeting season. Will David is here, and he's got the latest update on the tropical storm conditions affecting our region. And Ira Wood has a matter of opinion about eco-anxiety. A fire tore through a building at 70 Main Street in Wellfleet on Monday morning, destroying the recently opened lounge at the Copper Swan Inn and leaving six people who rented rooms on the upper story with no possessions and no place to live. The state fire marshal's office determined that the fire most likely started on the second floor where the workers were housed. The cause has not yet been determined, but is not considered suspicious, according to a statement from Wellfleet Fire Chief Richard Polly, released on Tuesday. The damage is estimated at $300,000. The tenants made it safely out, but two firefighters who suffered minor cases of smoke inhalation and heat exhaustion were treated at Cape Cod Hospital. One tenant works at the Fox and Crow Cafe and one at the Copper Swan Inn. The others work at other local businesses. The Fox and Crow, which is housed in a building attached to the one that burned, was unscathed except for light smoke damage, according to the fire chief. The construction of the wooden building allowed the fire to spread quickly, and the narrow hallways and multiple stairways made work difficult for firefighters. The fire was reported at about 6.30 a.m. and was under control by 9.15, according to the chief. Personnel from seven departments, from Yarmouth to Truro, responded. John O'Toole, who owns the property with his husband, Grant Hester, opened the new lounge on the main floor of the building in July. The damaged building was boarded up by late Monday. The building that burned had already drawn attention from the fire department. In late June, Polly performed a required inspection of the lounge as it was set to open and found some minor violations that had to be addressed. He then inspected the employees' rooms above the lounge and ordered a stove be removed from a bedroom that had been converted into a kitchen. The state fire marshal conducted a joint inspection of all the buildings on the Copper Swan property in mid-July. The buildings lacked required heat and smoke detection systems that are connected to an alarm company. Fire officials gave the owners until May of 2024 to install the systems in the lounge and employee housing, as well as in the Fox and Crow Cafe and the Copper Swan Inn. The condition of the employee quarters is one of the issues that sparked a battle between Trudy Vermeeren, who leases the space for the Fox and Crow, and her landlords, O'Toole and Hester. Earlier this summer, Vermeeren withheld rent on the employee housing because of its condition. That, and an overdue payment to cover the final month's rent on a five-year lease, prompted O'Toole and Hester to file an eviction order against Vermeeren in Orleans District Court. 
The case and a countersuit for $200,000 in damages for loss of investment and business filed against the landlords are both pending in court. While the building occupied by the Fox and Crow is 150 years old and the Copper Swan Inn is more than 200 years old, the building that burned dates back to 1935 and is known as the Hodgepodge House. The Hodgepodge House served as an addition to the space now occupied by the Fox and Crow. A Barnstable Superior Court judge on Monday ordered a 14-year-old white boy who was alleged to have attempted to drown a boy who was black to be released into the custody of his father. The alleged incident took place on July 19th in Chatham. The accused was ordered held without bail after a dangerousness hearing in Barnstable Juvenile Court on August 31st, following his arraignment on attempted murder and assault charges. Following an appeal of the detention order heard on Monday, the 14-year-old was released under conditions that he wear a GPS monitoring device and stay in the custody of an adult at his father's home in Chatham. The youth was indicted on August 31st by a Barnstable County grand jury on felony charges of attempted murder and assault with a dangerous weapon after he and another white juvenile were accused of harassing and assaulting a black juvenile at Goose Pond in Chatham. The accused is alleged to have thrown stones at the boy, calling him racial slurs and dunking him four to five times, making it difficult for him to breathe. The 14-year-old is being charged as a youthful offender, meaning his case will be processed like that of an adult in open session. The Walsh Property Community Planning Committee is now discussing the possibility of a phased approach to development at the site after a last-minute surge in the number of responses to Truro's Survey of Public Opinion. More than 200 responses flooded in during the week before the survey's September 5th deadline, nearly doubling the total number received in all by the town. At the September 6th meeting, the committee's consultant presented the results of the survey, which represented the last step in the group's efforts to gather feedback on its plan for use of the 70-acre Walsh property before sending it to the select board in preparation for an October special town meeting vote. Nearly two-thirds of survey respondents said they thought too much land was being allocated to housing. In light of the survey results, committee members wondered whether phasing would make their plan more palatable. The idea of phased development of the property had been previously considered, with an initial phase involving 40 to 60 units of housing, rather than the 252 units the committee ultimately settled on. At an August public forum on the Walsh property plan, many comments focused on the project's scope and a desire to see less housing and more space devoted to recreation. Some committee members suggested that those who appeared at the forum were not a truly representative sample of the town's residents. A similar sentiment was expressed last week about the online survey results. Committee member Raphael Richter expressed skepticism that the survey included a fair representation of Truro voters, given that an email sent on the day the survey closed by the Truro Part-Time Resident Taxpayers Association encouraged the group's members to complete the survey. The email noted that, among its own members, housing was not a priority. More than half of the 525 Walsh survey respondents reported that they were full-time residents. 39% said they lived in town part-time. The current plan calls for 21 townhouses, 
31 single-family homes, and 10 build-your-own-home lots. Housing opportunities would be allocated by a lottery system subject to potential restrictions, including year-round occupancy and income eligibility. The Select Board will discuss the Walsh Concept Plan at its meetings on September 19th and 26th. In a split vote, the Truro Select Board voted to raise the residential tax exemption from 25 to 30 percent at its tax classification hearing on September 12th. Board Chair Kristen Reed and members Bob Weinstein and Stephanie Rain voted in favor. Vice Chair Sue Arison and Clerk John Dundas were opposed. Reed favored raising the exemption to the 35% limit as a way of promoting a diversity of age, race, and socioeconomic status in town. Weinstein said he worried about the ability of the town to retain employees and to keep young families in the community. In voting against the increase, Arison said she supported the residential tax exemption, but she also voted no when the select board raised it from 20 to 25% for fiscal year 2022. She said she thought 20% was the right figure to support young families in this community, and she felt for the non-residents who are subsidizing the community and being treated like second-class citizens. Rain, who cast the tie-breaking vote, expressed support for the 30% exemption, given Provincetown's recent increase to 35% and Wellfleet's current 25%. The average assessed property value in Truro is just over $1 million. The exemption allows 30% of that amount to be deducted from a property's value when calculating tax if the home serves as the taxpayer's primary residence. To qualify, applicants must be able to show that Truro has been their primary residence since January 2023. The deadline to apply for the exemption is April 1, 2024. In other Truro business, Elizabeth Verde, former executive assistant to the town manager in Provincetown, has been sworn in as Truro's town clerk. Verde has taken over duties from interim town clerk Trudy Brazil, who is also town accountant, and who stepped into the role after the previous town clerk left the job in May. Forecasters say Cape Cod and the islands are likely to experience gusty winds, heavy rains, and coastal flooding from Hurricane Lee as it passes through the area Friday night and Saturday. A tropical storm warning was hoisted for the area at 11 a.m. on Thursday. Lee is decreasing in intensity, and as of 8 a.m. Friday was a Category 1 hurricane and was expected to weaken further before losing its tropical characteristics in the Gulf of Maine. While forecasters are expecting the center of the storm to pass east of Cape Cod, they say its broad area of winds and rain will extend westward over the Lower Cape. The anticipated storm has already caused a number of full and partial event cancellations, including the Harwich Cranberry Festival. All weekend events are canceled, and organizers hope to reschedule for October. Many events scheduled to be part of Celebrate Our Waters weekend in Orleans have been canceled. Some events may still be held. You can check orleanspondcoalition.org for details. The Harwich Community Center will close at 8 p.m. on Friday, and all Harwich Town buildings, including the disposal area, will be closed on Saturday. The second summer charity bike ride on Sunday has been canceled. 
the Payamet Performing Arts Center in Truro has postponed the Andara concert scheduled for Saturday and the Jimmy Tingle show scheduled for Sunday. Pop-up practices in Parish Park in Orleans will not take place this weekend. The Household Hazardous Waste Collection scheduled for East Ham and Orleans residents on Saturday has been canceled. It has been rescheduled for November 18th at the Orleans DPW on Godiah Hill Road. Most of this weekend's Truro Treasures events for Friday and Saturday are canceled because the events are outdoors. They're still hoping to salvage Sunday's antique car show, the Truro Vineyard's Grape Stomp, merchandise sales, and the raffle. All event updates can be found on their website at truotreasures.org. While we may not be getting the worst of the storm, a tropical storm warning and a high surf advisory remain in effect for our area. Stay tuned for the latest on the storm from Weather Will later in the broadcast. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. Fall town meetings are beginning to take shape across the Outer Cape, and we've got updates on the warrants in Provincetown, Wellfleet, and Orleans. In Provincetown, eight of the 15 warrant articles being prepared for the October 23rd special town meeting are related to the town's ongoing housing crisis. They include a $2 million purchase of land on Nelson Avenue, and two proposals to regulate short-term rentals. At a workshop on Monday this week, the Select Board, Planning Board, Community Housing Council, and Year-Round Market Rate Rental Housing Trust reviewed those articles, focusing on short-term rental regulation and the proposed removal of a mandatory deed restriction from the town's accessory dwelling unit bylaw. Town Manager Alex Morse said the impetus for the special town meeting was that the select board negotiated the purchase of two privately owned parcels on Nelson Ave for future housing development. That $2 million purchase must be approved by town meeting voters. Because a town meeting was needed, Morse said it made sense to add articles to the warrant where there was obvious consensus. Those measures included a ban on corporate ownership of short-term rental properties and a new limitation on how many short-term rental certificates any one person may hold. The corporate ownership ban would still allow LLCs, trusts, and S-Corps to hold short-term rental certificates as long as every partner is a real person whose identity is documented at Town Hall. The draft text of Article 13 adds a provision that limits each person to two short-term rental certificates, although all existing short-term rental certificates would be grandfathered, even for people who hold more than two. Morse and Assistant Town Manager Dan Riviello made it clear that there was no proposal to take away people's short-term rental certificates or to ban short-term rentals altogether. Members of the four boards were largely comfortable with both articles, and discussion centered on how to combat misinformation about them. 
The Provincetown Independent reviewed copies of an email from Pat Miller, president of the Provincetown Part-Time Resident Taxpayers Association, telling people that the push is to stop you from using your property for rentals. The short-term rental platform VRBO.com also sent a message to its rental hosts in Provincetown, encouraging them to make their voices heard. The only significant disagreement at the workshop was over the provision in the town's bylaws that requires new accessory dwelling units be deed-restricted to year-round rental only. Article 15 would strike the deed restriction and replace it with conditions that an ADU not be used as a short-term rental and that it not be converted into a condominium or sold separately from the main property. Planning Board Chair Dana Masterpolo said that the existing bylaw had produced only one ADU and that even if not all new units were used as the town leaders might hope, some fraction of those new units would be better than none at all. The Select Board will hold a public hearing on the town meeting articles on October 10th, and the Planning Board will hold a hearing on October 12th. The voter registration deadline for the October 23rd town meeting is Friday, October 13th at noon. In Wellfleet, the 19 articles on the special town meeting warrant include one that would establish a town planner position that would carry salary and benefits worth $145,000 a year. Currently, planning duties fall under the domain of the assistant town administrator, but that position is overburdened, according to Select Board Chair Barbara Carboni. Carboni is the town planner for Truro. Carboni said many potential projects have been agreed upon but can't move forward because of lack of staffing. A planner is the project manager for the town's housing production, open space, and local comprehensive plans that are required by the state. They are procurement agents who hire and manage consultants on town projects. Town staff have come and gone over the years, leaving Wellfleet with fewer staff to take on more roles and responsibilities. The Select Board and Wellfleet Housing Authority have recommended passage of the article. The Finance Committee will vote whether or not to recommend the article at the town meeting. Wellfleet has had several fiscal crises in recent years, compounded by employee turnover in high-level positions. With the departure of Assistant Town Administrator Rebecca Ruffley, there's no one on staff able to carry the Maurice's Campground project forward, and work has been suspended. Funding of the position would require a Proposition 2.5 override. Article 2 on the Wellfleet Warrant would amend how the town borrows money for a wastewater treatment facility to access better interest rates. The same article asks for the authorization of an additional $2.6 million for the design, permitting, and construction of the facility. The town will learn in November if a grant from the Mass Works Infrastructure Program is approved, which could potentially fund the project in full or in part. Wellfleet's town meeting is at 6 p.m. September 18th at the Wellfleet Elementary School Gymnasium, 
on Lawrence Road in Wellfleet. For warrant information, you can go to the Wellfleet Town website at wellfleet-ma.gov. Child care will be provided for children ages 3 and up, but sign-up is required prior to the meeting. A successful auction of municipal bonds in August shows that Wellfleet's finances are making a strong recovery, according to Town Administrator Rich Waldo. The auction sold a total of $11 million in bonds at an interest rate of 3.5%. This came as a surprise after Standard & Poor's downgraded Wellfleet's bond rating last spring with a negative outlook. But there was strong interest in the town's bonds after Bloomberg published an article in August announcing the upcoming auction. The Bloomberg article pointed to the town's purchase of Maurice's campground as the reason for tapping the municipal bond market, but according to Waldo, the total amount represents all of the Prop 2.5 borrowing authorizations the town has approved since 2019. In its April downgrade, S&P noted that Wellfleet's staffing crisis, which had led to a meltdown in the finance department, spanned the last decade due to rapidly rising housing costs, a shortage of public finance professionals on the Cape, and its significant commuting distance from the Cape's larger year-round population centers. But a lack of staff wasn't the only cause of the town's financial woes, according to a series of recent audits, including the fiscal 22 audit delivered last month. Mismanagement at Wellfleet Town Hall has been pervasive, according to the auditor. The 2022 audit lists three material weaknesses resulting from unreconciled cash balances, unreconciled receivable accounts, and a failure to record transactions to the town's general ledger. The audit did not include any additional comments on deficiencies in internal control, a notable improvement from the 14 comments the town received in its 2021 audit. Waldo said that while the fiscal 22 audit still revealed problems in the town's finances, it's a big improvement and Waldo expects fiscal 23 to show even more improvement. Waldo said the town is finalizing the books for 23 and it will submit a balance sheet to the State Department of Revenue by the end of September, which Waldo said will put the town on par with most other municipalities in the state. The slate has been set for next month's special town meeting in Orleans, including two overrides and one debt exclusion request. The select board voted last week to place and support 33 articles on the warrant for the fall session scheduled for October 16th. If approved, the spending would support eight new firefighter positions for the Orleans Fire Department. The override is one of three funding requests on the warrant that would need final approval at a November 7th special town election. A second override seeks to fund additional staffing and operational costs for the town's recreation department. There's also a request to authorize an additional $500,000 for the purchase of a new ladder truck for the fire department, which would be paid for through a debt exclusion. Voters at the annual town meeting in May authorized spending $1.6 million for the new truck, but the cost of the truck has since gone up.
The fire department has been pressing the town on the need for more staffing in recent years. With the new positions, staffing levels would increase from 5 to 7 per shift. Town manager Kim Newman said last week with approval at town meeting and the election, the town hopefully could begin hiring for the positions in January. And Chief Deering said he's hopeful that the firefighters would be hired and trained to begin work next summer. Elsewhere on the Orleans warrant, while a petition seeking to allow Orleans to regulate the use of fertilizers locally is moving its way through the state legislature, Article 24 seeks authorization to submit a similar petition seeking to create a bylaw to reduce the use of pesticides in town. Similar to the proposed fertilizer bylaw, town officials are pointing to studies that have shown the adverse impacts of pesticide use on water quality, as well as its links to asthma, cancer, developmental issues, and liver and kidney damage. The proposed bylaw does not prohibit businesses from selling products containing pesticides. Special town meeting in Orleans starts at 6 o'clock on October 16th at the gym at Nauset Regional Middle School, and you can see the full warrant and get more information at the Orleans Town website. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. Hurricane Lee's impacts on the Outer Cape will continue to ramp up through early Saturday. Winds will be increasing and the rain may be heavy at times as the storm makes its closest approach. Storm surge flooding is likely across the Outer Cape and Cape Cod Bay with that persistent and strong northerly fetch. The storm surge could reach heights of one to three feet above normally dry ground. Coastal flooding and beach erosion are likely, and downed trees and power lines will result in power outages. Locally heavy rainfall could produce some flash flooding, especially in poor drainage areas, but the storm is moving quickly. I don't expect an excessive amount of rainfall. It should move away and begin to lose its influence on the Outer Cape by Saturday afternoon, with rapid clearing Saturday night. High pressure quickly moves in to bring us a sensational Sunday with abundant sunshine and temperatures in the 70s. An approaching cold front will bring a period of showers and thunderstorms early next week, but following that front, a mound of high pressure and summer polar air builds in with several days of very pleasant weather. In the longer term, that high will slide off the coast and a warming trend should begin by the end of next week. Elsewhere across the nation, showers and isolated severe thunderstorms will stretch from New Mexico to Oklahoma this weekend. A cold front will bring showers and thunderstorms to the middle of the country, with that moisture making its way to the east coast early next week. And a stationary front draped across Florida will be the focal point for tropical downpours and flash flooding over the next several days. Meanwhile, newly formed Tropical Depression 15 over the central tropical Atlantic will become Tropical Storm and then Hurricane Nigel as it strengthens and moves toward the west-northwest. 
Our global models keep this away from the islands and curve it away from the U.S. East Coast. But stay tuned to all future updates regarding Nigel. And finally, the wildfire season in Canada is now officially the worst ever recorded. This year's fires have tripled the previous record high for carbon emissions in a wildfire season. And the fires have burned the largest land area ever observed in the country. Human-induced climate change is increasing the chances of larger fires in more places. Tens of thousands of people have already been evacuated and the wildfires continue to burn. Air quality frequently continues to be dangerous in both Canada and the United States and the smoke plumes carried on the jet stream have traveled as far as Europe. Now my exclusive WOMR weekend weather forecast for the Outer Cape. A tropical storm warning, a coastal flood warning, and a high surf advisory are in effect. This afternoon becoming mostly cloudy and breezy, highs around 68. Tonight becoming very windy with rain likely. North to northeast winds increasing to 30 to 40 with gusts to 65 miles per hour. Lows around 61. Saturday, very windy with rain tapering off. North to northwest winds 25 to 40 with gusts to 60 during the morning. Winds will diminish during the afternoon. Highs again around 68. Sunday, bright sunshine and beautiful. Highs around 75. As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. I'm Weather Will. Back in the 1960s, when I was growing up, I spent many long and sleepless nights imagining my family burning up in a ball of fire. I had visions of my street leveled and my school reduced to piles of rubble, ragged survivors fighting over dented cans in the spot where the supermarket used to be. There were entire days in the month of October 1962 during what is now called the Cuban Missile Crisis, when I found myself having trouble breathing, unable to eat or concentrate on schoolwork. I thought I was all alone in feeling this, but it was a pretty common disorder now called nuclear mitophobia, not merely the fear of atomic weapons, but the complete obliteration of human life on Earth. It's back now, big time, although the focus is not on nuclear weapons, but on climate change, and it's called echo-anxiety. We may not share our feelings outside of our close circles, but so many people have succumbed to the chronic fear of environmental cataclysm that therapies to treat it are being taught at major university psych departments all across the country. Different people experience climate anxiety in different ways. Some people wallow in hopelessness, feeding themselves a daily diet of horrific information, temperatures soaring, glaciers melting, populations uprooted, cities destroyed, wildfires spreading. Other folks torture themselves with guilt, constantly confronted by the fact that it's become almost impossible to live an environmentally ethical life. 
simply driving to work, using the air conditioner, eating a hamburger, not to mention shopping online, even for things you simply cannot buy locally, is bound to create greenhouse gases. Anger is a big component of eco-anxiety. How is it possible to stomach the behavior of national politicians without getting an ulcer? Watching them travel via jet plane to highly hyped climate conventions that scientists say are no more than exercises in public relations. And what to do with that anger? We often turn it against each other. Bad-mouthing friends who drink almond milk, live in large houses, or drive SUVs, while the real culpability belongs to the governments and multinational corporations that shape fossil fuel policies. Myself, I've had climate anxiety for almost 30 years now, since Hurricane Bob left a dozen people dead, including a dear friend of mine brought wind gusts of 125 miles per hour, destroyed homes, power lines, boats, and left some people on the Cape with no power for weeks. We actually considered ourselves lucky, living with no lights, no water, or flushing toilets in 90-degree heat for about six days. And ever since, I find myself coping with symptoms that actually compare to post-traumatic stress disorder, distressing memories, inability to sleep, hyper-alertness, anger, and irritability whenever a big storm is forecast. In response, we've launched into a futile attempt to storm-proof our house, upgrading the generator, increasing propane tanks, cutting trees, installing gas heaters, and yet, days before a major storm is scheduled to hit, I find myself obsessively checking weather apps, switching between TV weather reports, tracking the storm's progress up the coast. Listening to the wind is the worst part, I think, unable to sleep as the gusts hammer the roof. When I'm really about to go off the deep end, I'll wake up my wife and insist that we sell the house and move someplace else. She's the rational one in this relationship and has learned to calmly ask me to produce a list of places that are free of danger. California? Nope. Wildfires. The Midwest? Nope. Tornadoes. The South? Even worse tornadoes. Seattle, one big giant heat dome. I'm currently focused on Duluth, Minnesota, which many have considered a climate refuge and whose slogan is, Duluth, not as cold as you think. I'm not selling the house anytime soon, however, and because I see no end in sight to the climate crisis, I've become accustomed to all the worrying involved. But I was comforted to know that at least climate anxiety is a real thing. I may be crazy neurotic, but at least I know I'm not alone. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. (laughs) 
And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn, Will David, and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to sustaining members Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported community radio, WOMR.